Chapter 7 Memories No, Father, I won't! Mahal yelled from in the center of the room. He's the only translator I have! Layak kneeled beside Mahal, awaiting his fate. You will do as I say. You were made a fool of, a spectacle amongst your own people. Mercy is a clear sign of weakness. The warlord stood by a window, looking upon the moonlit city below. Long gray locks of hair were tossed left and right in the chilly breeze. Do not argue with me. Kill this man or you will suffer the consequences. I spared the worm that struck you earlier, for his price was far too great to waste. But I will not let this pass. An example must be made. Mahal stopped on the floor, crossing his arms. But father, this is my Colosseum. This is my decision. His breathing became shaky as he raised his voice. You did not give me this Colosseum simply to take charge and tell me what to do. I want to keep him. His hands gripped into white-knuckled fists at his sides. He makes things so much easier, he said, looking at the floor. The warlord turned from the window, stalking toward Mahal. You will do as I say, he said in a low, dangerous tone. I will not, Mahal said, finally looking the warlord directly in his eyes. The warlord grabbed Mahal from the collar and threw him into the wall. Abrisham remained still, watching her father as Mahal stood to his feet. The warlord placed his palm on Layek, using his death touch to suck the life out of him. Layek lost all color to his skin, becoming white as snow, and the warlord's bloodshot eyes settled on Mahal. The next time you disrespect me, it will be you lying dead on the floor, he said in the same dangerous tone as before. He regarded the nervous servants around the room and gestured to the body before him. Clean this up. He squatted and jumped through the ceiling into the night sky. His power didn't grant him the ability of flight, but when he powered up, it was hard to tell the difference. Abisham didn't know what to do. She stood silently beside her brother, waiting for him to react. His breathing was slow and strained, but gradually it became more intense. He roared and grabbed a nearby guard, draining him of life as his father had just done. And then he punched a hole in the wall, causing that section of the ceiling to cave in on him. He didn't even notice. He was livid. He caught sight of Abisham, who hadn't yet noticed that she was leaking emotion through her worried expression. He pointed to the door and addressed her with raspy breaths. Get out. Abisham didn't wait for a second warning. She bolted out the door, walking as quickly yet gracefully as humanly possible. Once the door shut behind her, she heard more racket coming from inside the room and leaned against the wall, feeling her heart beat like a drum. Several female servants rushed over, asking if she was okay, and she shooed them off requesting silence as her comfort. Close call wouldn't even begin to describe the previous scene. Abisham had been close to death more times than she could count, and the majority of instances had been from her own father and brother. That was the single closest time she'd seen the two of them to physically fighting since her mother died a year prior. 
she made her way to the balcony, where she sat quietly watching the stars. Sitting alone in the balcony, high above the seats below, with no one to bother her, made her feel powerful, as if nothing could touch her, not even her brother. What was the issue, anyway? So what if that man decided not to kill a Paul? It saved Mahal and ultimately Father plenty of money. Finding another champion would have been a very long and expensive process. And how was the incident with the sword Layek's fault? No one could have foreseen an act of rebellion such as that. The man acted of his own volition. There was absolutely no need to kill Layek, and to do so in a private setting was not a show of strength. It was a cowardly act. The one thing didn't set straight in Abrisham's mind. Why did that new slave choose to spare Apol in the first place? He had nothing to gain by sparing his life. He had been instructed to kill Apol, to gain his freedom. There was no way for this slave to know that Mahal was lying. What could have been his reason for sparing an enemy? Abisham's curiosity now outweighed her fear and resentment toward her family. She walked to the holding cells, being granted access to the inner hallways without question, as one did not question the daughter of the lion. That is, if one values their life. This slave was different than the others. Rather than huddled in a corner, trying to conserve body heat, this particular slave sat in the center of his cell, crossing his legs with his eyes shut. Yet no man could sleep in such a position. It would be impossible not to fall over in his sleep. She kneeled beside the window, looking into the cell. Focusing her mind on his, she pierced his thoughts, scanning his consciousness. Unlike her brother and father, her power was telepathy, a gift passed on genetically by her mother supposedly one of the most powerful telepaths in the world. This was the only reason her father had tolerated both Abrisham and her mother. As she focused her telepathy, she searched for surface thoughts. Cold. So cold, she heard. Yet it was from the man in the next cell. When Abrisham focused hard enough, she heard surface thoughts as if they were audible. Many thoughts could be heard now. Most were similar. Hungry. Tired cold. Typical thoughts of a suffering man. However, this slave was silent. Not a single thought came from the surface of his mind. Abrisham would have to dig deeper into his consciousness. Maybe he was asleep. Abrisham focused her powers on his memories, trying to unlock the mystery of this man. Unlike her brother, this man was difficult to crack. To Abrisham, this slave's mind was a soup, a thick, black soup. She could merely stick her mental hand in to find a memory or thought, yet she had no control over what she pulled out or how much of the memory she could access. She could tell some memories had more weight to them, yet others were dwindling. What a mystery this man was, and still her curiosity grew. Finally, she decided to just pick one of the many memories floating around in the thick black soup. She latched onto a memory and focused all of her power into it, and immediately she was transported to a place she had never been before. In this memory sat a large group of people gathered around a table, eating food in a brightly lit dining room. When they spoke, they spoke Abisham's language. Did this stranger speak Dari after all? I think the taters need a bit of salt. Jack, could you pass the salt, please? An older man from across the table said. Sure. Jack said. Annie, 
How did you do on your test? Jack handed the salt to the man and turned to face a small girl with curly brown hair and more freckles than she knew what to do with. Pretty good, she said with a full mouth. She swallowed and continued. The teacher asked me if I could make anything other than a bear. Jack smiled warmly. And did you? He grabbed a bread roll from the table. Yeah, I made a little desk that looked like his. I don't know how to make a chair, though. Jack chuckled. I can teach you. It's not that hard. What did your teacher think? He liked it. He said he wanted to keep it to show the other teachers. Sounds like you did pretty good. He stuffed the roll into his mouth as the memory became blurry. Abisham's stomach churned as the memory faded into another. It felt as though she had been spinning in circles for quite some time. It was difficult for Abisham to take in the new setting so quickly. In this memory, Jack was younger, and it was raining. Hard. Jack's eyes glowed dark red, and eighteen men surrounded him. He stood with a dangerous posture over the unconscious body of a blonde-haired girl. Last warning. I don't care how much money her father owed your boss. You're not taking her. So back off before this gets ugly. His tone was ferocious. He nearly matched father in the amount of power and authority he exuded. He wasn't messing around. Listen, one of the men surrounding him said. We don't want any trouble. We just came to pick up the girl. Several people in the crowd surrounding Jack agreed with the man. Indistinct shouts of, yeah, and that's right, came from the crowd. Check your facts, kid, another man in the crowd said. There are eighteen of us and one of you. Do yourself a favor and walk away. Boss likes you. Because of that, we'll give you one more chance. Give us the girl. She did nothing to you. And she didn't do anything to your boss. Now leave here before I really get upset. The man in the crowd sighed as Jack's red eyes glowed even brighter. That's it, he said, motioning for the other men to follow. I've had enough of all this fooling around. He's had his chance. All at once the men charged forward, causing Jack to pick up the girl and fly to the roof of a nearby building. He placed the girl gently on the roof and flew back. The men were still charging by the time he returned. He picked up a car and threw it at three of the men. Then he grabbed two other men by their ankles and slammed them into the side of a building. One of the men took a flying leap, only to be stopped dead in his tracks by Jack punching him in the gut. The punch was so fast and powerful that the impact shattered the windows of the nearby buildings and cars. The man crashed through three cars in a row before he stopped moving. Lightning crashed and the rain began falling harder. It was nearly pitch black except for the street lamp, which Jack grabbed from its place and began whacking the men one by one into the walls surrounding the street. It was now completely dark in the street, except for a pair of glowing green eyes that disappeared and reappeared in different places, followed by consecutive thumps and crashes. When the lightning struck again, it revealed unconscious bodies littered everywhere, and a street that had been completely trashed from holes in the wall, to bent cars, to sections of the street completely upturned and rippled. In the center of the street, floating in the air, was Jack, soaking wet from the rain. His eyes began fading from their red glow, and he floated toward the roof holding the unconscious blonde-haired girl. The memory faded, and a new one appeared. 
This time, Jack seemed to be elementary school age and had less of a fit figure. He sat crying, cradling a knee that had a fresh scrape on it. His shorts and shirt were all dirty, and he cried for his father, who came running out of the house nearby. The older man from the previous memory kneeled and held Jack tightly, saying comforting words to him and rocking him in his arms. After a few moments, Jack's crying was reduced to a few sniffles as his father continued to hold him. What happened, Jackson? He said in a comforting tone. Jack answered with shaky breaths. I was running and then I tripped on the hole over there and I hurt, hurt my leg. All right, you're all right, Jackson. Listen carefully. I'm going to do something and I want you to remember this. Most importantly, I want you to remember why. Jesus loves us so much that he took the punishment of everyone's sin upon himself. He did that for us both. The punishment for sin is death. Now a scrape is much less of a punishment than death. But just as Jesus took my pain, I'm going to take yours as well. Because I love you. And I want you to see just how much Jesus loves you too. The man placed his hand over Jack's wounded knee and a brilliant white light escaped from beneath his hand. A moment later, the light faded, and the man removed his hand from Jack's knee. The wound was gone, and the man smiled warmly as he helped Jack to his feet. As they walked, the man's jeans stained crimson right above his knee. The very knee that Jack had scraped badly moments before, and all at once it clicked. Abisham realized the man hadn't healed Jack's wound. He had taken Jack's wound. Everything in these memories shocked Abisham so deeply that she didn't know what to think of them. Women being treated not as property, but as equals. Something not to sell in marriage, but to fight for, to protect. All of this was so overwhelming. It was simply, What are you doing here? A voice rang inside Abisham's head. It startled her and made her physical body nearly fall over. How are you? Talking to you? I assume we're using telepathy right now, so that answers that question. I... I've never met anyone who can do this apart from my mother. Well, now you have. You know, it's not very nice to go poking around in someone else's memories. You could have seen one of the hurtful ones, and then it would be like reliving it all over again. Reliving it? You mean you could see what I saw? You were there? The first time and the second time. That last one was very special to me. I don't tell many people about that one. Mostly because if people knew about my father, they'd take advantage of him. I answered your question. Now I have a question for you. What's your name? Abisham, daughter of the lion. And you? Jackson. Son of a pastor. Is that a title or a last name? Both, I think. And you? Is son of a pastor a title? It was a joke. In hindsight, it probably wasn't that funny. My last name is Medley. Medley? What a peculiar name. I'm not sure how to respond to that. But I do have another question. I'm sensing a lot of mixed emotions from you. Is this part of telepathy too? Sensing emotion? 
Avisham shifted positions, feeling uncomfortable, like her privacy had just been invaded. Yes, it is. It is on the surface of someone's mental makeup. So to say, it is easy to access. Emotion is one of the most difficult things for one to hide. A change of subject was most needed at this moment. Jackson, where do you come from? You mean other than the soundproof buses I was transported on? I'm from the United Americas, in the States. You're from the States? Is everyone rich there like they say? No. Jack chuckled in real life as well as in Abisham's mind. Definitely not. Me and my parents are by far not the richest family. But everyone has a house? A home? That's also a misconception. I would be willing to bet that there are nearly as many homeless people in the States as there are in... Where are we exactly? Kabul. My father's territory. We're in a sub-country. I should have known. Abisham, is there an American embassy around here? There used to be. However, my father is not fond of Americans, and neither are the other warlords. The embassy was destroyed years ago. For obvious reasons, it has not been rebuilt. Suddenly, realization struck Abisham, and she remembered why she was probing his memory in the first place. I have another question. Why did you spare Paul? Why did you not kill him and be granted your freedom? Jack chuckled in her mind. Do you honestly think that your husband would grant me my freedom? Abrisham shook her head in disgust. Husband? Jack's brow furrowed. I... I thought... Mahal is my brother, she said with a bitter tone. Jack nodded his head comprehensively. Ah, there it is. I was wondering where all those wounded emotions were coming from. Abisham shifted positions again, feeling as though she had fallen into a verbal trap, revealing too much information with her lack of restraint. She felt heat collect in her cheeks, and she bit her lip, though none of this conversation was taking place out loud. Another change of subject would do nicely. However, Jack beat her to it. Bree? What? Sorry, I thought I'd shorten your name. It was a bit of a mouthful, Jack said. Interesting that something spoken through telepathy would be a mouthful, Abrisham said. Touché. What is my purpose here? What does your father purchase me for? It's clear to me that I'm a slave of some kind. At least, that's what was explained to me. But will I just fight until I lose? How long do champions usually last? Abrisham sensed a hint of nervousness coming from Jack. Just the opportunity she needed. I expect you to last a year. That is, of course, as long as the typical miner lasts. However, it might not be the Colosseum battles that kill you. You are skilled in combat. That much is evident. It will be the poison that will be your undoing. It comes for everyone in the mines. At this, Abrisham decided not to waste her chance at an exit with her pride still intact. She rose from her kneeling position and walked toward the door paying no attention to the silent slave below. Wait, she heard, audibly this time from inside the cell. What is it, slave? She answered with her own voice. Isn't there some sort of cure? An antidote? There is not. Now be quiet, she said out loud. Yet she entered his mind once more before she left the moonlit hallway. Be careful, Jackson, she said in his mind. I wish you luck. And she left him, returning to her room once more 
to retire for the night. <laughs>